You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical community-owned media during our June Station Appeal. We'll be taking donations online to help keep the station going for another year. Like so many community organisations, we're feeling the impact of COVID-19 restrictions. And we know you are too. But independent community media is more important than ever. And we hope you can show your support with a donation. The 3CR Station Appeal starts on Monday the 1st of June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. 3CR, here to stay. And welcome to the Radioactive Show, produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. Hello, I'm Emma Crunch. Today's Radioactive Show has been produced on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people. We give our respect to Elders past, present and emerging. This week I'm bringing you an interview with Ray Atchison from New York. Ray is the director of Reaching Critical Will, the disarmament program of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. We dive into her excellent recent article, COVID-19, Divest, Demilitarize and Disarm. I'm speaking with Ray Atchison and Ray and I met on a radioactive exposure tour two years ago, I think, um, travelling through country in South and Central so-called Australia and meeting communities affected by the nuclear chain here in Australia, mining, transport and waste. It's great to reconnect with you again, Ray. Um, could you start by explaining the purpose of reaching critical will and maybe your role in that? Absolutely. Well, thanks very much for having me back on the show, Crunch. It's great to connect with you again as well. Um, So Reaching Critical Will was set up in 1999, actually, by an Australian, uh, Felicity Ruby, um, who was then director of the Wilp office in New York. And she established this as the International Disarmament Program of WILP to bring some transparency to the United Nations work on disarmament issues, Uh, mostly nuclear disarmament, but we've really grown the program since then to cover a range of issues. Um, The idea was to be kind of a watchdog for the UN and uh, figure out what governments around the world were saying and doing about nuclear weapons and bringing that information to the public in a more accessible means, and also coordinating uh, other activists who wanted to participate in UN meetings to try and have a coordinated advocacy effort inside the UN and to bring together national campaigns um, at the UN as well. Um, so since then, it's we're more than 20 years old now, uh, amazingly, and uh, we now cover also small arms and light weapons, the international arms trade, armed drones and autonomous weapons, uh, explosive weapons issues. So we cover pretty much 
all weapons that you might be concerned about. Um, and we're also part of um, many global campaigns for the prohibition and elimination of different weapons. So uh, Reaching Critical Will is the representative of WILP um, with the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, the campaign to stop killer robots, the international explosive uh, weapons network. So we have um, a wide range of, of activities that we're involved in in collaboration with others too. And of course, in all of our work, we really seek to bring a feminist, anti-militarist perspective, which is Wilp's added value to a lot of this work, that we're not just against the weapons themselves, but also the structures of patriarchy and violent political economy that goes along with the maintenance of these weapon systems and the constructs of security through force and conflict. Mm. Thanks for that um, explanation. It seems that you're really across um, disarmament and demilitarizing in or lots of aspects, all aspects of it, um, how that manifests itself, particularly in some of the more modern technologies um, and have been able to respond to that over the years. I have, I've read an article you wrote just recently and that article is called COVID-19, Divest, Demilitarise and Disarm. Um, and I thought I'd just quote from the introduction of the article to give some context to listeners. So, uh, as you've written, we are spending more on militarism and weapons and pretending it brings security when we know people are fleeing from relentless bombing of their towns and cities, when we know the devastating radioactive violence of nuclear weapons lasts for generations, when we know that domestic violence victims are more likely to be killed by an intimate partner if there is a gun in the home, when we know that armed drones have killed thousands of civilians indiscriminately, when we know that the so-called threats that all this militarism is supposed to prevent just leads to more and more violence. Um, reading this introduction in your article, it made me think about how these, I mean, these issues preceded the COVID-19 um, pandemic. And however, why do you think it's, it's especially pertinent to be raising them now? We have a moment with this pandemic, I think, to really get to the heart of why we're collectively in this situation. And not to say, of course, that the majority of people in the world have had any say in the way that societies have been run or organized, but that how the decisions that have been made by the elites in each of our countries have led us to a situation where we do not have the resources to cope with a crisis of this magnitude. We don't have enough money for face masks or um, other protective gear or for ventilators. We don't have enough money to pay doctors and nurses salaries. In many places, there aren't uh, hospitals um, and beds enough to take care of the huge influx of people in many countries where conflict has been ongoing for years and especially where explosive weapons have been used in populated areas where towns and cities have been bombed the healthcare system has completely been decimated in these locations and so this moment of a global health crisis like COVID-19 is an opportunity to look at where our money has gone and what our priorities have been and what our conceptions of security have been 
and how we can change that now. How can we think about security differently now when we realize what the real threat to us is? Um, how can we redirect our resources? Where would we want to put that money if that's a choice that we could make now? Mm. Yeah, I think it's such a powerful point to be making. Um, and as you say in your article, you also you do explore this idea of how um, it's this culture of militarism that has just predominated through, well, yeah, through the last century or two, I mean, arguably beyond. Um, could you just explain for us a little what you mean by a culture of militarism and these paradoxes around the ideas of security through violence and how that is particularly, as you're saying, um, particularly now when we're finding ourselves without what we consider basic human security, um, how that's exacerbated at the moment. Mm -hmm. Well, with the culture of militarism, like you say, it's it's not new. It's been around um, throughout our human history, of course. But um, I like to go back to Wilp's founding in 1915 to really um, recognize that the women that came together during World War I uh, to form WILP, they located in the military industrial complex a key impediment to peace. Um, they found that the private profits accruing from war were one of the main reasons that World War I was such an incredible slaughter. And of course, moving on from then of, of how we found ourselves in another world war and in conflict since then. And it really does come down to trying to unpack the ways in which our culture is embroiled with those making money off of certain industries, in this case, the military industry, those making money from the manufacture of weapons, um, the sale of weapons to other countries, the use of those weapons, the establishment of foreign military bases around the world, the wars and the occupations that we see today, and how all this really goes back to the uh, economic system that we've established, the capitalist economic system, in which military spending has become such an important part, particularly in the United States, but in many, many other countries around the world as well. Um, and so how that has manifested into a culture is really that in order to justify its existence and these massive profits and the massive amounts of money that we're spending, and we're talking in 2018, um, 1 .9, or 2019, sorry, $1.9 trillion um, spent on militarism on weapons on war um, so that's we're talking a lot of money um, the the culture our culture that supports this is in terms of how we think about what we need to be secure in our lives or in our countries um, who is creating these narratives who's who is benefiting from the idea that um, we need the most advanced military technology, or we need to have 800 military bases around the world, or um, we need to have a nuclear arsenal um, of, you know, 5,000 nuclear weapons or even 10 nuclear weapons. Who, who gets to decide those things, but also who's perpetuating these ideas that this is how we make ourselves secure when we have so much 
telling us that the contrary is true, that we've wasted all of our resources on these weapons and they're not keeping us secure. They're not preventing conflict. They're not deterring others from attack. Um, there's um, manifest ways that we do violence to each other as human beings that weapons have facilitated, not reduced the likelihood of. And so I think that's why it's also very important in light of this pandemic, but more broadly moving through it and out of it, um, that we really need to re-examine these priorities and these understandings and cultures that we have. You're listening to The Radioactive Show and my interview with Ray Atchison, Director of Reaching Critical Will. We're discussing her article, Divest, Demilitarize and Disarm. Our next asks ask Ray how the military-industrial complex has fared during the COVID-19 pandemic. Have companies involved in defence and the global arms trade continued to profit? In particular, ask her to explore the example of Amazon. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a lot to unpack there when it comes to Amazon. It's a really interesting case study as, as a company. Um, of course, there's the, the workers' rights angle where workers are not being given proper safety equipment or there's not proper social distancing. And then when they've gone, tried to strike or organize themselves um, to push back on this, that there's been some severe crackdowns on worker organizing. Meanwhile, of course, Jeff Bezos, the CEO, is... Uh, the world's richest person and has secured for himself billions of extra dollars on the back of this pandemic. And so he's profiting wildly from this crisis while the people working in Amazon warehouses are suffering. Um, so there's that angle of it. But the reason that it showed up in, in my blog is also to connect that part of our capitalist economy to the military industrial uh, part of our economy as well. Um, and so Amazon is one of the companies right now that's seeking to profit from um, the sort of direction that advanced weapons technology is going in. So moving from armed drones into autonomous weapon systems and artificial intelligence-based weapon systems where weapons would actually um, use coding, sensors, software, algorithms, facial recognition, machine learning, all of these phrases that you've probably heard um, around surveillance, perhaps, um, and other invasive technologies that we're seeing in some of our societies already, and applying some of that to weapons technology, which you can imagine um, is going to be a horrifying future, very dystopian future if we don't act now to prevent um, prevent it or its worst excesses at the very least. Um, and so Amazon is one of the com companies that was um, bidding for a contract with the U.S. Department of Defense um, for a cloud computing system 
for the military. It's called JEDI for short. That's its acronym. Um, but it is, which is horrible for anyone that's a Star Wars fans to, to um, have that misused in such a terrible way. Um, but uh, um, Amazon was not initially awarded this contract. Um, and a lot of it, it seemed, came down to, or at least the um, accusation from Jeff Bezos is that it came down to Trump's personal hostility uh, towards Bezos. And so Microsoft was awarded the contract. Um, but now Amazon is suing because it's saying that the criterion um, was unfair because it was all personally motivated. So this is in the middle of the pandemic where this billionaire is suing the Pentagon for a military contract for what most people think is the place that you order books from. So it's, I think it's, it's a very interesting case study in pulling out the different threads of militarism and how it can really be embedded in so many aspects of our lives that we don't even realize that when we order um, something from Amazon that we're putting workers' lives at risk and that we're supporting um, what is becoming an increasingly important actor in the military industrial complex. And exposing that to people, I think, is very important because I think people will care if they understand that, the, that this is how things are all interconnected and linked. Um, but it's, it's surfacing that information, it's making that accessible um, and making it relevant for people's lives. And I think that is another um, opportunity that COVID-19 really presents to us is, is that we are all connected and these structures are all connected and we can, we can see that um, much more clearly now than we could before. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think, yeah, just Amazon as a case study does just really expose so much about the existing structures um, prior to this pandemic and then just how they've become the priorities of our societies, how askew they really are when you see them um, kind of exposed in this way. Um, Another quote from your article is, is you say, despite the stranglehold that militarism and its material realities seem to have over our politics and economics, this pandemic is starting to create some cracks and shifts in the official narrative. I guess this is where we are. Um, I'm wondering if you have any concrete examples you've seen of that so far and where where you imagine, you know, the cracks might be able to widen or from here on in? I think one big uh, shift that we're seeing right now in many circles is this willingness to critique capitalism as our economic structure. Um, certainly in um, many of our circles, um, the circles of many of your viewers, this is something that we talk about all the time, the capitalist political economy and um, uh, how we need a different economic system in order to uh, really live in solidarity and in equity and with justice. Um, but I, I don't think that has been as mainstream in terms of discussions, articles um, that are popping up even in mainstream media now, where people are really um, locating today's challenges in the capitalist economy. Um, so I think that is a really important shift um, that we need to 
expand and run with and um, lead as much as possible. And I also think another shift that I've noticed is the willingness to talk about uh, militarism in this context. Um, it's something, of course, Wilt's been talking about for 100 years that many anti-militarists and peace groups have advocated for for many years, the cutting of military spending, the abolition of nuclear weapons, um, the dismantling of foreign military bases, all of these things are, are in our lexicon and in our advocacy. Um, but to see an increasing number of mainstream actors take these up as well, these ideas that maybe this is where we need to look for the money. Um, I think that's an important uh, shift that we need to support and and guide as much as possible. Um, mm. So when it comes to the military spending debate, for example, um, we had in Time magazine an interview with Mikhail Gorbachev, and he called for cutting uh, global military spending by 15%. And so I think it um, is very important for, for everyone to support that call, but then to call for much more than that. Um, and that's one thing that I talk a little bit about in the article is what would a 15% cut look like? What, what does that translate to? Um, and what more do we actually need in order to have real meaningful change that frees up resources in the way that we need it to, to deal with the climate crisis, to deal with this pandemic, to deal with poverty and inequality around the world. Um, same thing with the UN Secretary General's call for a global ceasefire, um, an excellent initiative that uh, everybody should support and promote in any way possible. But again, it's insufficient to create the change that we need because as long as uh as long as arms manufacturers are profiting from the manufacture and the sale of weapons then those weapons will be going to the conflict zones and so we can say that we demand a ceasefire but if there is economic incentive for certain actors to be benefiting from violating the, those ceasefires then that's what will continue to happen so we need to really shift things more fundamentally than the calls that we're seeing. But even these calls themselves are, are quite groundbreaking um, in the old context. And so now that this new landscape is opening to us, it really is a time to um, think deeply and structurally about how we um, make those minimal demands a reality and then move beyond them to actually solve uh, the issues of our day. Mm. Yeah, thanks for that great answer. Um, I think for me it was um, really useful to consolidate some of thinking and provocative to look at some of the articles you've been sharing on the WILP blog. Could you um, refer listeners to that and anywhere else you think that people who've been inspired to hopefully examine this for themselves and think about what we can do in our different contexts to um, follow up on? Absolutely. So the website for the WILP blog is wilpf.org. Um, you can find the, the link to the blog on the homepage, but the specific link is then backslash COVID-19. So it's very simple to find. Um, we have blogs there, not written just by me, but also by um, Cynthia Enloe, the feminist scholar, um, Christine Chinkin, uh, feminist lawyer, by Madeline Reese, the secretary general of WILP, um, by um, 
several of my colleagues as well that work in different programs um, and uh, and on different issues within the organization and some guest blogs also by others. Um, one in particular um, by Nella Porovich Isakovich, who's um, a Bosnian colleague of mine, um, about solidarity, which you were mentioning, and how important it is in this moment to think about what we consider our acts of kindness in terms of looking after our neighbors and trying to draw together as a community, especially where our governments are failing us, um, and how to turn those acts of kindness into acts of political solidarity. Um, so she provides a lot of forward-looking ideas for that, building a new, a new world as well. Um, so I think that's a really rich place to go to, um, and that will be continuing. We'll also be doing some video dialogues um, that people can can watch um, either live or after. Um, and I think there's a lot out there right now. Um, and it's really, there's maybe too much in some ways because there's uh, everyone's on Zoom now and everyone's um, connected online all day. Um, but there is a lot of really good organizing going on that I think is is really important and valuable and gives me hope that this crisis that we're in um, can have something positive coming out of it if we do use the moment thoughtfully um, and use it to create concrete action that we can all carry forward in our lives. Mm. Well, I think your important work and absolutely all that um, I've found the various articles on the Wolf blog with the different angles from those feminist scholars and people you've been um, speaking of their really clarifying and then also motivating to um, find where those cracks are also in your local context and the networks we're already involved in and just actually the powers that be don't really want us to think beyond those very individualised acts of care um, to actually challenging structures that, you know, I yeah of the wider structures you've been talking about today and how everything is embedded in the military industrial complex, the patriarchy and, you know, not to mention stolen lands and everything that we sometimes sense is there, but pandemics like this and how you've explored today um, just really kind of brutally reveal some of those, some of those dimensions of our... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so thanks so much for joining us from New York um, in what is a really difficult time um, and also for continuing to do the work that you do and help others, you know, think beyond and think through this pandemic and to what, what world we want to see. Um, yeah, really, really great to reconnect with you and Wilp again. Yeah, you too. Thanks so much for having me on. I've been speaking to Ray Atchison, Director of Reaching Critical Will, which, as she explained, is the disarmament arm of WILP. Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. I strongly recommend looking up the article that was the centrepiece for today's show. 
called COVID-19, Divest, Demilitarize and Disarm, along with lots of other excellent articles and posts that you can find at the WILPF site, wilpf.org. From the site, there's a link to the COVID-19 blog. You've been listening to The Radioactive Show, broadcast on 3CR Community Radio and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. Thanks to the ACE Collective of Friends of the Earth for their support of our show. You can podcast The Radioactive Show on 3cr.org.au. Find it under Programs Radioactive. Music in today's show has been parts of the song Idue Fiumi by Ludovico Unadi. I'm Emma Crunch. Thanks so much for listening, and here's to divesting, demilitarizing, and disarming the future. <laughs>